Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Hello, and welcome to Politics in Question. It is 2023, and we are still the podcast that asks all tough questions about our political institutions, why they are failing, and how to fix them. I am Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Hazari. I'm a professor of political science at Marquette University. Happy New Year, Julia. It's uh, January 9th, and already we've had a lot to talk about this year. Happy New Year. It does. It feels like it's already been kind of a politically eventful year and it's barely into the, yeah, into the month of January. Um, So I know today we're going to be talking about the Republican Party and the House of Representatives and the the battle for Speaker of the House, which concluded uh, last Friday. So I'm going to hand it to you to ask the questions, but I know that we've both been thinking a lot about party politics and congressional politics, maybe more more even than we normally do. And I'll also point out, so you don't have to point out, that last week you had a Substack. Everyone should subscribe to Lee's Substack if they're not already, in which you uh, pulled off a sort of, um, I would say, maybe horrific pun about the Speaker of the House and the party base, which people I don't even know were sharing this and saying, look who won the internet. People like people who don't know you, people who aren't political scientists. I had like aunts and uncles um, sharing this horrific pun. Um, you want to don't make me say it. You say it. Uh, oh, yeah. So this is my Substack undercurrent events, uh, which folks can subscribe to for free. The pun was in the headline, uh, GOP learns the hard way, turning the base up too high blows out your speaker, which, you know, I think I think I prefer terrible because terrible kind of can mean like both good and bad, as opposed to horrific, which just has a negative connotation. But, you know, it's okay. I've been practicing my dad joke. So this is uh, what, what a vacation of parenting does to one, I guess. This was really... You know, if like if Gen X dad jokes, um, it was really a, a high form of that. So, yeah, I wow. was I was going to kind of send you an email and be like, we need to have a, a conversation about your dad jokes before you wreck yourself. And then you won the Internet. So what do I know? So the Internet is never wrong. Internet so. is never wrong. I also have a Substack. It's just my name. But uh, I'm writing a book so I am not doing a lot of substack activity at the moment. So let's let's chat about, you know, what you think is going on here with the GOP. It was actually a very insightful post once I pulled my hands away from my face and and looked at it. Yeah, so I I guess the the question well there's a bunch of questions, but the first question I think we should discuss is about the health of the Republican Party, right? I think there were a lot of people who said, well, this is chaos. The Republican Party is in disarray. Others who said, well, maybe this is actually healthy. Like parties should argue about the direction that they're going to take. And maybe it's OK for them to do it in public. And if they spend a few days trying to figure out what 
the speaker is going to do as the leader of the Republican Party in the House and what the rules are going to be and who's going to have power. Like, maybe it's maybe that's healthy. So what what say you, Julia? Healthy factional fighting or disarray? I've got a a radical view on this. So, you know, I, I think just to put this in context, at the end of 2021, I wrote a couple of pieces exploring this question with regard to the Democratic Party, because they had stalled out and in fact, remained stalled out for for many months on the big um, Build Back Better legislation. And I had written and sort of defended that this is just what parties do. Disagreement is is how politics work, sort of take. But for the Republicans, my sort of takeaway from this is that given the amount of bad faith, given the fact that we almost saw physical violence on the floor of the House, I assume that, like most of our audience um, and myself, Lee, that you were uh, watching this on Friday night, you know, given that, to me, what is what actually seems like it's going on is like, there were no clear stakes of this fight. We know they're fighting about some rules concessions. We we know they might have been fighting about some some committee committee stuff. But the kind of broader stakes of this fight are unclear. And I think that this has been true in the GOP for a while. Um, this is also my diagnosis of part of what happened in 2016 in the primary, which I thought a lot about as I thought about these failures of coordination over the last week, um, was sort of like how we were seeing these same dynamics play out. In the 2016 primary, it's not that you had different factions of kind of more moderate or more conservative or different issue priorities. You saw different kind of versions of what conservatism looks like. I don't think that's intrinsically a bad thing. But when you put it into the this sort of post-Trump, post-January 6th context, to me, it starts to look like this isn't actually a political party anymore. It's not actually a group of people organized around a kind of set of policy goals. It's a people, it's a group of people at least partly organized around a set of kind of communication strategies and, you know, personal branding goals. And to me, that's really the takeaway is that we're seeing, you know, it's not really a question of is this a healthy political party or not, but just, you know, what is this? Are, are these people working on behalf of, of anybody else in any meaningful way? I'm thinking about the Lauren Boberts and the Matt Gateses and that kind of faction of the party, but, you know, maybe also other factions of the party. And that so that's my takeaway. So I I'm going to locate myself kind of on the extreme end of this, of the unhealth question. So so is this even a political party or just a, a collection of of people who are mostly interested in their own personal fame and, and grandeur. Uh, it certainly seems like a number of the Never Kevin folks were definitely interested in their own personal grandeur. I think there's still some of those folks, Chip Roy may be among them, who like just have this real, real messianic uh, view of themselves as stopping runaway government and uh, feel like they are on this uh, crusade to save America from its own debt uh, and its own runaway spending. So I think there's there's an element to that. But uh, I mean, what, what does strike me is how how little they're actually arguing about 
like McCarthy is basically going to you know, make life hell for the Biden administration. And he was going to do that anyway. Uh, that's that's his sort of commitment. So the fight seems to be over just like how much hell he's going to make uh, life for the Biden administration. Is is he going to turn it up to, to, to 23 or is he going to turn it up to 29? Uh, but either way, it's gone way past 10. And so one of the things that, that struck me in watching this was was really just ha- how much it was personal. It seems like it's just like there are a bunch of people who don't who don't like him or don't think he's he he was respectful enough towards them, rather than there being a real a real difference in in policy. It's like I I do think like. That, that there is a difference between Democratic Party fighting over policy and saying, well, uh, how much should we spend on these programs? Who, Which program should we cut? Versus the Republican Party just saying, how much should we tear down the system? Should we tear it all the way down or should we tear it 90% down? And who should who should be in charge of tearing it down for us? And And I think there's a real asymmetry there. Yeah, I agree. And it's too bad James wasn't able to join us in this episode because he kind of pushed back on me on Twitter. Um, on Friday night, I kind of gave in and started live tweeting <laughs> C-SPAN watching. Or I guess I was watching CNN because one of the commentators said something about this group of Republicans, a sort of gates Bobert faction, behaving in bad faith. And I was like, what would good faith look like for this group of people? Um, you know, I think people of a variety of kind of policy preferences can act in good or bad faith, depending on the situation. But what is good faith for this group? I want to actually zoom out a little bit and contextualize this even more. Lee, I thought one of the things that was really useful in your uh, dad joke piece was the question that you posed about kind of Republicans as an opposition party. And they're like, you put in 90 years of opposition. So if this is what we're looking at here with the Republican Party is 90 years of starting with a new deal of kind of being in opposition to the growth of the administrative state and larger federal, specifically maybe federal government, then they've sort of hit this point. So I wanted to kind of broaden that out and ask you, you know, how did the GOP get here? I mean, what are some of the highlights between the New Deal and now that you think are especially significant? And are there little kernels of foreshadowing in the story of the New Deal Republican Party or the New Gingrich Republican Party or the John Boehner Republican Party that explain why McCarthy had to give in to these sort of extreme demands of a small faction? So I'm going to throw that throw that to you. Well, thank you for that question. Yeah, so I've been thinking about this for a while, that pretty much all of the federal government uh, growth has been under Democratic leadership. uh, And pretty much all of the major programs were created with Democrats in charge. And Democrats have basically been the governing party of the U.S., for for 90 years with a few interregnum periods in the 1950s there was a period in which republicans had unified control in the 2000s there was a period that republicans had unified control but without unified control republicans have been pretty much a permanent opposition party and i remember paul ryan saying something like this in 2017 uh that 
oh, well, we're an opposition party. We're learning how to be a governing party. And I think it takes a long time to to be a governing party because the natural role of the opposition party is to be critical of the programs that the, the governing party, the party that's been in the majority, has put forward. And only over time does the uh, opposition party become the governing party by developing its own programs. And there's really been no time, except for these you know, short short periods of a you know of, of four years here and there, where Republicans have or two years here, uh, where Republicans have had to take a, a real sense of ownership over the government. So if you think about the way that coalitions develop and and grow, the opposition coalition accumulates all of the grievances against the existing federal government. And the governing party is the party that's responsible for owning and defending and supporting the existing programs. And over 90 years, there's been a tremendous sorting. I mean, there's also the geographic sorting, uh, cultural sorting, but is the federal government a force for good or is the federal government not a force for good sorting? And th- that has taken on a kind of extreme development, I think, since Obama and the Tea Party emerged. And if you look at the, the just the incredible turnover of uh, the Republican coalition in Congress, I think something like 85% of Republicans in the House were elected in 2010 or since. So you can think of the Bush years as sort of a period in which it looked like maybe the Republican Party was going to be a governing party, and that quickly disappears. And obviously, Obama's presidency adds a strong racial element to the federal government and the kind of increasing racialization of American politics around identity, which layers on to this size of the federal government thing that has been playing out for a long time. And creates i think what has become almost like this this last fight existential struggle against the federal government as as it's clear that the republican coalition is a shrinking coalition although maybe it's actually not because republicans won a majority of votes for the house election but still there there is that ethos that we that this this is our last stand and we have to do everything and I think we're what we're really seeing is the culmination of of a ninety year trajectory, and I, I think it may be hitting its limits. Yeah. So as I was listening to what you were saying, I had no idea how to respond, and I've had like a lot of people, I've had my head in kind of the Nixon to Gingrich part of this story for a long time, and the sort of populism part. But I think I'm gonna. I'm going to put a pin in that if I can use some corporate speak and think about this other thing that I've also been kind of like contemplating for a year or so. And that is that I think we don't talk enough about the origins of the Republican Party. Normally, when people talk about the origins of the Republican Party, so to go back even further than the 90 years and go back to the 1850s. People often, like, typically when this comes up in contemporary discourse, it's usually like, how did the party of Lincoln become the party of Trump? It's usually, it's about race in like this very literal way. And by extension, kind of about the federal government in this very literal way. But even though the Republican Party through, you know, up through the beginning of the 20th century was sort of the party of 
where big business and big government could work hand in hand, it also is a party that sort of that was forged around an idea. And in that case, it was limiting the expansion of slavery. And in a way that was, you know, that that brought together a coalition of people around who kind of had different viewpoints. But it's always been a party that is, is not about process. It's not about patching together a complex coalition or finding common interests in a sort of dynamic way. It's always been a party of having some kind of idea and having everybody position themselves around that idea. And I think that really informs what we what we see now. In some ways, this is like an extension of the, the Grossman and Hopkins asymmetry thesis, except I think, you know, it's a really good book and really powerful em- empirically. But one of the things I think it doesn't necessarily do well is sort of identify where this lands in history. And I think that's it goes back further for the Republicans being this kind of ideology party that has never really settled on how to think about process and coalition building. And what I think is relevant for for the moment we're in now is that your synopsis of kind of the 90 years of opposition party leaves out, I think, really two two very important moments of thwarted attempts to become a kind of coalitional governing party. There are two moments where we see glimmers of what could have been a Republican coalition that sort of function like is operationally like the Democrats. One is George, the George W. Bush years, where you do see some expansion of government, you know, not least um, the Iraq war, um, you know, but also the Medicare Part D and, and things like that. So it's not the Democrats, but it is a party that does actually have some sense of governance and that has unified control for quite a bit. And that become i mean that falls apart for a variety of reasons it do, it can't survive you know bush's unpopularity the housing crisis the financial crisis but then also the those sorts of solutions it does kind of bust up the coalition um and that's i think also notably the only majority coalition of the republican party in the 21st century and it's it is fleeting and the second one is Trump's nomination in 2016, where, you know, one of the really critical elements of that was that Trump exploited his own ideological ambiguity around expanding government programs, at least, you know, for some people, for deserving people. And then that, that couldn't, st- that couldn't be born into governance because of his dependence on the more traditional coalition. But I think that's really, you know, some of the crucial elements of the, of the Republican Party is that when you have these instances where they have kind of legitimate majority, and that's also, I think, descriptive of of Republicans in the House right now. They did win the national popular vote to the extent that's a thing. They did win it, and they do have a majority, and it's just kind of like they don't have any sense about how to conduct themselves as a majority. And it just, it goes, I think, even further back and even deeper than what than what you're saying. So I don't know if that's really a response so much as a addendum and sort of fleshing out of additional pieces of, of history. Um, and I think the thing that has exacerbated that is the race part and is the part that it has gone so deep as to identify the government as an enemy, to identify Democrats as enemies. And they sort of like have like lost sense not just of being a political party but this is something i've said about trump a few times is like 
he doesn't know what a country is. Like they've sort of lost the sense of what of like civic broader civic purpose. So I think to the extent that these people have leverage in the House of Representatives, I think this is this is a disaster. I think this is really a crisis. I think there are many other elements of politics now that are more more hopeful than that. But I think that there are some very serious challenges to democracy as we know it in this situation. Yes, I, I agree that there are some serious challenges to democracy. And, and looking ahead to 2023 as the rest of the year, only nine days in, but the year ahead will, I think, have a number of flashpoints here. Obviously, the, the vote on whether to raise the debt ceiling in which we are likely to see at least I think a significant faction of the Republican Party in the House demand major spending cuts uh, in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. And then we'll just play this potentially destructive game of brinksmanship in which uh, a gun may actually go off and uh, somebody may get may miscalculate and, and we will destroy the full faith in credit of the United States government. Also a bunch of, uh, there'll be, there'll be government spending bills. The likelihood of a government shutdown this year is 99.7%, according to my forecasting model, just leaving that 0.3% in case I, in case I miscalculate. And of course there'll be a remarkable set of attempts to intimidate and harass the Biden administration. Probably I wouldn't be surprised if the house tries to impeach Biden at some point in the next year. So all of these things are going to kind of bring bring everything to a head. And, and the question is, I think, whether there is a still remaining faction in the Republican Party that will finally say, this is too much. This is not a way to, to govern. And do something, break off, join with Democrats. I, I don't know. Or, or are there no moderates left in the Republican Party. And that's part of the problem is that it's all just shades of destructive anti-government conservative. Yeah. I mean, I think that there there are not a lot of ideological moderates left in the House. The question is, are there any, not even really institutionalists, but kind of people who know what a country is in the House coalition? And I think that deep down there probably are. So it's just a matter there, I think, of sort of you know, coalitional dynamics and re-election concerns. And I also think the, the way to think about what's going to happen in the year ahead is to think about kind of what are things where this sort of group of Republicans can exert a veto. And like everything where there's a veto point in the House is is going to be a problem in the ways that you say. And the things I think that have to sort of overcome you know, to overcome veto points, to overcome procedural hurdles, to build majority coalitions um, like impeachment are less likely to come to pass. I think that that is the way to sort of think about that is who has go back to like our, you know, institutions 101, who has veto power in a given situation. And it is true that typically, you know, the majority in the House is a significant, <laughs> significant veto player. One of the things that's been sort of going around in my mind, I don't think this is really an answer to your question. And I think this is in true politics in question. Fashion sort of poses more questions than it answers. But one thing I've been thinking a lot about is that my understanding of 
recent, you know, recent-ish House reform, so like from the 70s and the 90s, is that they empower the majority, and the majority tends to sort of work through the speaker, and there's, um, or similarly, like the Rules Committee, and there's this assumption that the majority party is to some meaningful degree controlled by the speaker and or the speaker sort of reflects the majority sentiment, right? That there is this meaningful majority that passes seamlessly through these institutions. And that's not true anymore, right? That has completely broken down. And I think we don't really know what it looks like not to have a House majority. I've been thinking a lot about your work because I think one of the the really useful insights of your your book on having multi-party politics is about coalitional fluidity. And so we sort of have a sense that at most other points in American politics, if you had had a really bare majority like this, then you would just, you know, you would have, you would patch together a majority across party lines and it wouldn't really fundamentally be a big deal. And now it's, it's a huge deal. And so I think that's sort of how I'm thinking about it. And I guess this is all a long way of saying, I feel like this is kind of uncharted waters to have a fractious, tiny, ossified majority party under the current house institutions. And of course, as we're saying this, we don't, we don't yet have a, an adopted rules package, right? So, and, and that will probably be contentious. Now, I mean, if we, if we, we want to do the like long history thing, it was 1911 when uh, the progressives deposed the Republican Speaker of the House. And that was a, the progressives were really a cross-party coalition. So in many ways, that that began a long process of depolarization that hit its nadir around the 1970s, in which the parties, to, to many people, seemed largely indistinguishable and overlapping. And since the 1970s, we've had a, a period of repolarization and the reforms that many good government and liberal folks wanted in the 1970s was, as you say, a re-empowerment of the speaker because they thought that committee chairs who got there by seniority tended to represent conservative Southerners as the Democratic Party was the broad majority party, but also had a lot of conservative Southerners, that that was preventing liberal policy and that if you re-empowered the speaker, that would allow the Congress to make more liberal policy, which it, it did to, to some extent, uh, but it did increasingly by excluding the Republican minority, which created the grievance politics within the chamber that Gingrich was able to utilize to build support for his leadership of the Republican Party. And Gingrich centralized power in the speaker even more than previous speakers, Jim Wright and Tip O'Neill, who had started to do that. and. And of course, he set in motion a process by which the speaker had godlike qualities to determine everything, which has, over the last decade, has provoked various complaints that, well, we got to return back to regular order in which committees used to deliberate and the speaker didn't control everything and we ought to decentralize power in order to have a more functional Congress, which, man, I, I'm certainly sympathetic to that perspective, but what seems like the never Kevin folks wanted to do was not to really allow for a decentralized process, but was to stack the process 
in their favor by giving them key powers. So rather than a genuine decentralized process in which a a uh, you could sort of have a an open way in which different different ideas across the chamber could could elevate what they want to do is is really control the process in under the guise of decentralizing it. Now thinking about different possibilities for coalition government, the, the way of sort of thinking about it now is right now, Kevin McCarthy or whoever is going to be speaker of the Republican Party really only has one possible governing coalition, which is all Republicans. Similarly, Democrats have had only one governing coalition and and a way in which Nancy Pelosi could control her caucus would be to say, hey, do you all like having gavels? Do you all like being in the majority? Well, you better listen to me and follow me, because if we don't act in unified fashion, then we're going to lose the, the majority now. Of course, they lost the majority, uh, but because Democrats are the party or the governing party uh, and they believe in government doing things, having majority power is in some ways more important to Democrats, whereas Republicans just sort of are, are almost addicted to being in the opposition, which gets back to your point that for a lot of these folks, they, they don't really care about anything than their own sort of personal brand and status, which in some ways is easier to manage and build when you're in the opposition, which limits, really limits the ability of a Republican speaker in particular to manage the coalition. Now, you could imagine a multi-party Congress, six parties in which uh, there are lots of different potential governing coalitions, pretty much all of which would include the political center. But because the political center has vanished in American politics, really, you know, over the last 20 years, there's no way to, to bridge that gap without a really kind of significant change in party politics. And if a handful of Republicans decided to join with Democrats to run the place, they would no longer be Republicans, I think. There's no way for them. And you, you look what happened to the Republicans who as much as dared to uh, say that maybe Donald Trump had done something that was bad on January 6th, and very few of them still remain. Yeah, so our final question to wrap up is, whether this is the end of the GOP as we know it. Um, And this seems like a good, you know, as good a note as any to transition to that. So what what do you think, Lee? Is this the end of the GOP as we know it? I think it might be. I just don't see how the Republican Party holds together. I think there, there has to be a revolt of a more, what remains of a governing faction. But at the same time, you know, unless we change the electoral rules in this country, the Republican Party can hold together by having a monopoly on opposition to the Democratic Party. So I guess the question is, are the developments that we're already seeing just nine days into 2023 and we'll almost certainly see exacerbate over the rest of the year, are they likely to accelerate the case for major structural electoral reform that would then put an end to the Republican coalition by allowing different factions to break off and run independently. And I think, I think maybe. Yeah. I'm, I I feel like this is, if you were doing a podcast right under don't use charts, the next rule is don't have the podcasters agree that the answer is maybe like, 
how to make the most dull audio in the history of the world. But I think that's right. I think so. I mean, probably not to anyone's surprise. I think the the real test will will be in the presidential nomination, whether there's a kind of rump Republican faction. And it seems to me like that's decently likely that this sort of conservative Republican caucus, whatever we're calling it now, is is going to dominate the process and nominate somebody who's not acceptable to what I think is a very small but significant faction of of other Republicans. And that'll be the end as we know it. You know, one thing I've written about and we've kind of argued about before, Lee, is that American parties are amazingly you know, have amazing longevity. They're quite old. Yeah, yeah. The Republican Party, yes, they're they're older than most democracies. Yeah, and so, like, I don't completely buy the idea that we have to have a totally new electoral system to have to, you know, inject some change into the system that we have. But I also think that you're seeing some demand for a new electoral system. Um, And you're seeing different states adopt new voting rules. And I think, you know, kind of a, kind of a variety of places, um, maybe not deep red places, but you're seeing a sort of range of, of um, places with competitive politics of rural states like Maine, um, urban areas adopting new rules. It's not clear to me that this has made a huge difference, but um, I think that people are starting to think more broadly and creatively about what kind of system they would like to see and about whether they're being represented. And I also think that in a much more mundane point that, you know, the Republican Party brand has taken a bit of a beating and that that's, that'll be a lot of the takeaway from 2022 is this sort of what was problematic about the brand, the association with January 6th, with Trump, with hardline anti-abortion stances with a number of things that aren't very popular. And I think that's, you know, that that's also a, a critical factor in the beginning of the end, as well as the institutions. Um, that I think is where I'm landing on this is, you know, maybe, and that certainly what happened last week was not, I think, not standard party infighting, not standard politics, did not you know, depict this, the party in a favorable way. One thing I'll be curious about to see is kind of how many people in the country more broadly were even paying attention to this and how it shaped public opinion. But it seems likely the answer might be not very much. Well, probably not very much. But this is, I I think, just foreshadowing of the year to come that that these these fights are not going away. I, I would be very surprised if a year from now, Kevin McCarthy is still Speaker of the Republican party. I, I think we're going to see some real dramatic conflicts over the next year that that will accelerate the demand for a, a significant reform of our party system. And uh, yeah, I think I think the maybe is a good place to leave because you know, we, we've got a year ahead on this season and, and we got to keep everybody in suspense. So maybe y'all will come back and listen to another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Elizabeth Lucero, and our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.